to our evening series in the book of Hebrews, if you'd turn there. This evening we are in Hebrews chapter 3, but I'll read from verse 12 there in Hebrews 3 to uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Remember, right before this, in Hebrews chapter 3, as I mentioned earlier, beginning of verse 7, we find that quote from Psalm 95. Uh, That is the context, and so we pick it up there in verse 12 after having uh, quoted that and reading again through chapter 4, verse 13. So Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, uh, the reading of God's holy word. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in the same way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Father, we would again pause before your word, acknowledging our dependence upon your spirit to work, to enlighten our minds, to move upon our hearts, to give us understanding, to give us a passion and desire to embrace all that you have revealed to us for our good and for your glory. So, Father, it is with expectation that we now listen. And because of the faith you have given, 
We listen with expectation to hear your voice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over 10,000 people a year in the United States will die in a car accident because of alcohol, by far the biggest contributor to such accidents. But about 15% of all fatal car accidents and about 6,000 deaths per year involve this. Any guesses? Falling asleep while driving. You ever had that happen? Your eyes close for just a moment and you are immediately jolted with a sudden rush of adrenaline as your body realizes that you've dozed for just a second. At least you're hoping it was just a second. It's frightening, isn't it? Nobody gets into the car with the intention of falling asleep. Nonetheless, there are factors that contribute to such happening. There are triggers or, or warnings that we should be alert to so that we would take precautions. When I was growing up, my family would travel every summer on a long vacation from Washington State, either to Oklahoma or sometimes Minnesota or sometimes both. My mom and I knew that after lunch, my dad would get a little sleepy. He would never admit it, but we knew it, and it terrified my mom. So she came up with this idea. She would put Mr. Blabbermouth in the front seat with my dad after lunch. My job was to talk, or as my dad would put it, to annoy the eebie-jeebies out of him. Again, we were just taking precautions recognizing the state you are in spiritually, taking stock of yourself, or as the prophet Haggai admonished God's people, consider your ways. This doesn't play well in our self-absorbed day. We are more likely to hear about following our own path, continuing your own faith journey, being true to yourself. More we will hear those things than we are to have someone telling us to take a candid and honest evaluation of the spiritual dullness and sleepiness of our hearts and lives. The fact is, there are times in our pilgrimage that we are like the sleepy driver. Oh, take it easy, comes the deceitful voices. You're fine. God has forgiven you. It's not that big of a sin. You're not hurting anyone. You can go to church next week. Hey, you read the Bible a few days ago. You don't need to set aside time for prayer. God knows your needs. If you catch yourself doing such things, listening to such things, then I would suggest you do the spiritual equivalent of stopping the car, getting a cup of coffee, walking around a bit, or putting your Gabby son in the seat next to you. As we saw last week, the Hebrew sermon is in the thick of Psalm 95. And as verse 14 says, we need to keep a firm grasp on our confidence in Christ Jesus. As verse 13 reminds us, we need to be exhorted daily to be on guard against the deceitfulness of sin. Someone in your life to exhort you every day to be careful because sin is ever so deceitful. If we are not wide awake as we were when we began, then perhaps we need to stop and get ourselves back to where we need to be. Otherwise, in spiritual language, our hearts will become hard and bitter, verse 15, the spiritual equivalent of nodding off to sleep while driving. Now look at verses 16 to 18. I would ask you to keep your Bible open. I do want to show you some things that I think it's important for you to see with your eyes as well as hear with your ears. Verses 16 to 18, the preacher is going to drive this point home 
with three questions that are kind of rattled off like a machine gun. And remember, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon preached in one sitting. So here are the questions. First, who were those who heard and rebelled? He answers, well, it was the people of God. The people that had wonders done for them. It wasn't the pagans. It was the same ones he had brought out, miraculously so. It was the ones who saw and who actually experienced, who benefited from the sheer power of God's mercy. They were God's people who heard and rebelled. Question two, with whom was God provoked? Again, it wasn't the nations. This is not a reference to Egypt. It was the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They heard what God said, and they proceeded eventually to do the very opposite. So the preacher is saying, this warning isn't for your next-door neighbor. This warning isn't for your non-Christian co-worker. This warning is for you. Christian, it is for you. And then finally, to whom did God swear they would not enter his rest? Well, it was to those who made a start and then stopped believing, stopped trusting the promises that God had made. They accused Moses of tricking them, of exalting himself. And when the spies went into the land and told the people what they saw, the congregation simply chose to embrace a faithless response. So now I want you to think about this. These people would have insisted that they were God's people. They would have insisted that they were followers of Yahweh. They would have even insisted that they trusted him. And yet they stopped not believing in God. They would have said they believed in God. They stopped believing God. And they believed a lie. Once you stop believing the God who called you, again, very important, not believing in Him, once you stop believing His day-to-day promises, when you stop believing the God who rescued you, the God who guides you, the God who says He has a future for you, once you do that, You simply go round and round in the wilderness, never getting anywhere. It could be, I for one think it is undeniable, that the church is filled with such folks. They, like all of us, find themselves in the wilderness, and and no wonder they aren't inspiring. They look no different in thought or affection than those who do not claim to believe in the Lord. Because when the rubber meets the road, despite the objections, they do not live with and in an active faith that says yes. Yes to all that God has said and yes to everything he is saying. What Hebrews wants to make sure that we don't miss is that the alternative that is offered here is the same that believers face today. And this is demonstrated throughout this text, throughout this epistle, even in the terminology that is used. And and remember, this is first century referring to the psalm that is referring to the wilderness wanderings. And now here we are in the 21st century looking at the same passage. And the point is the possibilities that we read about in the text are the same possibilities that face you and me today. Again, the terminology is the same. The word promise is used in 4.1, in 6.12, in 9.15 to describe the people of the wilderness, the people in the psalmist's day, and the people in this sermon's day in the first century. The word gospel in 4.2, and again in its verb form in verse 6. The point is this. The gospel and its demands was announced to the Old Testament church as well as the gospel has been announced to us. 
That's what 4.2 says. The gospel's proclamation, its demands, its glorious promises have remained unchanged from the beginning. And the spiritual world of those in the wilderness in the Old Testament, with all of the temptations, all of the, the, the sorrows and difficulties and blessings and power, is identical to the world that the original hearers of Hebrews lived. And it's the exact same spiritual world that we live in as well. So with that in mind, there's a warning or a consequence for the people under Moses, for the people listening or singing the psalm, originally when it was given as a psalm to be sung, for the people hearing this sermon that we call the book of Hebrews, and for you and me. And it is this. It was and remains a possibility for those who are outwardly numbered among the people of God, in other words, baptized professing Christians, members of the church, it is, it is possible for folks in that external community by protracted unbelief, refusal to repent, to forfeit the eternal rest of God. Or if you would rather, to forfeit heaven. We are told that these people did not enter into God's rest, and we're told why in verse 2. And I want you to look at it and see it. The good news, that is the word gospel, there in our text says good news, the word gospel came to us just as it came to them. They had the good news that Yahweh is king, just as we do. However, they did not believe. They did not have faith to live life for and unto this Redeemer. So here they are, Externally, the people of God, and within the church of God, and with all of the blessings of God's presence and power being manifest to them. Remember, the Ammonites didn't have any of that. The Canaanites had no such wonders in their midst. They didn't have the good news of God as King and Savior and Merciful Father preached to them. No, it was God's own people. God's own people, and yet we're told that they had no faith. And that this warning is for us cannot be missed. Look again at 4.1. We are told, let us fear, unless any, and the word there is us, again the plural, unless any of us should also fail to reach it. And again, I understand these kind of warnings might not sit well with comfortable Christian people. And I have heard Christians complain with regard to such texts. We are Christians. Why are you saying this to us? Well, the answer is simple. The text says it was written for and to the people of God. There is a future hope, but it cannot be said to be ours without careful thought and a life that is intentionally set upon that hope. And the people of God are to be careful so that they would not have hard, unbelieving hearts. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 10. Again, quotes from Psalm 95. Now, I, I want to show you something that is very practical. It's something that most folks would not mention. And I am not saying that as if to say, look how insightful I am. Not at all. It is not a lack of insight that causes folks not to mention this. Rather, it is because to say what I am about to show you knocks over all of our neat and tidy categories. And that is what we don't like. We want to believe that we have everything figured out and everything nicely ordered. We have our Christianity wrapped up in this really pretty box with a nice bow on it. 
And then we read this. So look again at verse 2 of chapter 4. We're told the reason the wilderness generation did not enter the future of God. It's because they had no faith. Verse 2 says that. And we have no problem so far. They didn't enter because they didn't have faith. They didn't believe. But now look in verse 6. Because there we're told that they did not enter the future of God because of disobedience. And then he repeats it, that the reason they did not enter was because of disobedience. That's verse 11. Faith and obedience are so intimately tied together that the Holy Spirit will tell us if we don't have faith, we don't go to heaven. And then he will say, not once but twice, if you do not obey God, you will not go to heaven. Again, says that part twice. The mention of faith only once. In fact, in verse 11, we are told that we should be striving in our obedience. And I have heard well-meaning ministers tell their congregations they ought not to be striving. I am becoming more and more convinced that many, I don't want to say all, but many of the modern cries against works righteousness has become nothing but a shibboleth. It is a label to attach to those who proclaim or seek to live obedience, who seek to live in faithfulness by doing what God commands. And to label them with such a derogatory label is to then discount them. And we no longer have to listen to what they're saying. And, and maybe you're thinking, okay, are you saying that there aren't folks who think they are saved because of their works? Folks who think that they are accepted by God because they, they are good enough. Of course, that is a possibility that someone thinks that. But seriously, do you know personally anyone who thinks that? Can you name one person that you know personally who actually thinks that God is going to let them into heaven because they have earned the right because they are so good? And remember, we're talking about people in the church, people who profess to be the people of God. Folks who have been baptized, who have heard the true gospel, just like, just like the text says. Now, perhaps your mind is racing and you're thinking, wait a minute, I know some people who go to a very, very, what we would call liberal mainline churches. They claim to be Christians, but if you ask them why they're going to heaven, they would say that they're going to heaven because they have led a good life. Okay. But I did have a qualification. If you know someone like that, have they heard the true gospel? Are they hearing the true gospel? And in evangelical circles, those who take the Bible and salvation seriously, the problem in our day is not works righteousness. The problem is just sheer and open disobedience. Because for any number of reasons, we have convinced ourselves that obeying the scriptures is irrelevant. But that is not what Hebrews says. That is not what any biblical author says. Certainly not what Jesus said. Now, there is a theological point that begs to be made. Someone might argue, wait a second, the text says that Joshua did not give them rest. But he did. They went into the promised land. They got rest. Remember, the Old Testament and the New make it quite clear, especially here in chapter 4, and we'll see this again in Hebrews chapter 11, that the rest 
given, that is the promised land, was not the rest that was being spoken of. Rather, there is still a rest. There is a future that the promised land only pictured. There is something more, something much more. That is why in your meditation from chapter 11, we read that the faithful of the Old Testament had their eyes set not on a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but they had their eyes set on a better country. What does it say? What kind of country? A heavenly one. God is preparing a city for us, we're told in 11.16, and that is the future that we are told to live for. Revelation says that this city will come down from heaven glorious, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth for the perfected, redeemed people of God to live with God and with the Lamb forever. We are called, faith and obedience calls to us, to live that truth, to live that promise right now, as long as it is called today. The Old Testament church missed it. They didn't see it. All they could see was themselves. What they wanted, what they desired, trumped God's purpose. They did not trust him while insisting that they believed in him. Now, if we needed more incentive to take all of this seriously, I would ask you to take your eyes down to verse 13. Now, this is a silly example, but I'm going to use it anyway. I remember uh, when I played football in college, long, long time ago, every spring, every player would sit down with the head coach in what he called a one-on-one. Just you and the head coach, nobody else in the room. And it was at that time that the coach would ask some questions, but mainly he evaluated where the player was in his development. And then at the end, he would either invite you back for the next year or tell you that you are not invited back and therefore you would not be on the team. You had to be invited every year to participate on the team in the coming year. You could not be on the team without an invite from the coach. For freshmen and new players, the anticipation of this meeting would keep you up at night. Would I get invited to come back or not? Well, what about this one-on-one? Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You will want to take an honest, no-holds-barred look at your life, at your heart, your affections and your desires, let alone your actions. There is no hiding. The Lord knows it all, every action, every feeling, and every motive. The language leaves us nowhere to hide. It says we are naked before him. It says we are exposed to him. Think about that. Those are the two things we avoid in this life at all cost. That is what this familiar verse 12 about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, that's what it's about. God's word has its purpose to cut you, to even pierce you, to open you up, So that your thoughts and the intentions, not just the intentions of your thinking, but the intentions of your heart would be completely laid bare. God's word is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It is not bound to the things of sight. And I would even go so far as to say it does not play nice. 
It demands that we see things for what they really are. More importantly, it demands that we see ourselves for what we really are. To be naked before someone is complete and total vulnerability. To be exposed is for many a fate worse than death itself. And I know people, Christian people, leaders in their church, leaders in their ministries, who when threatened with being exposed, being uncovered, opted to take their own life instead. And before you pass judgment, what do you feel inside at the thought of all of your worst secrets coming into the light? All the stumbles, all the falls, all of the malevolence that makes its home inside of you. All of it. Wide open. For everyone to see. It, it's a frightening prospect. You can clean up nicely and fool people. We all do it. But don't be a fool. You can trick your friends, your spouse. But you can't fool God. And he, not your spouse, not your friends, the living God is the one who is going to sit you down and ask you about, well, about you. This is a rough way to end a sermon, especially when the sermon that is the book of Hebrews does not end this way. Verse 14 continues the preacher's message, brings us to our hope, and the reason why being so vulnerable doesn't need to overwhelm us. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. Now there is our confidence for this life and the one to come. But we're not going to go there tonight. We're going to stop at verse 13. We're going we're to stop under the gaze of God. It's good for us. It's good for you. It's good for me to go ahead and sit before the Lord naked, exposed, and ready to answer Him. And my friend, I say to you, do not fear. It's okay. You're going to be okay. As Augustus' top lady reminds us, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen. Our gracious Father, even in the moment of realization that you know us so intimately, the fear can be overwhelming, but we remember that perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love that you have demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus, that love casts out fear. So we come as we are, knowing, Father, that your mercy and grace and the blessings, the, the clothing of righteousness that is ours, will in fact be draped around us and we will be seen clothed in righteousness and we will be vulnerable only to the blessings of our God. Oh Father, may we see ourselves clearly and may we see the Christ clearly and may we give you praise that you have come to rescue us 
to bring us to your family, to clothe us, and to love us forever. Father, may we live in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.